You know, the way we opened our last episode put us in mind of the sword once again. We say once again, because if you've been around here long enough or made the long trek back through the back catalog, eventually you'll come across the very first episode we ever did, Fort and Foible. Experimental as this whole thing was back then, we barely registered what we were letting ourselves in for when we recorded that proof of concept. We the producer just wanted to show we the potential researcher and writer what we could do with the material they already had, and convince them this whole idea could work. It was a pretty rough episode, and might have been best left out of the public ear, but it did its job. And in a move it would take him several years to regret fully, a younger, more lucid, angry GM gave us the podcasting equivalent of, good night Wesley, good work, sleep well, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. And as in that case, he never quite managed to get around to it. In Fort and Foible, the collective we explained to the collective you that phrases where the words fort and foible are used, such as interpersonal communications are not his fort, and screaming in your ear is just one of his little foibles, actually came from the names of the various parts of a sword. The fort, we explained, is the lower third of the blade, starting from the hilt and going up. It's the strongest portion and withstands the most force, hence the connotation of a particular area of endeavor being someone's strength, the thing they are good at. Of course, foible is the opposite of that. A person's weird quirk or weakness corresponds to the upper third of a sword blade from the point towards the middle. And that was that. The whole point of the episode was to make these two things clear. Oh, and also to correct your pronunciation of fort. In all, we took maybe four minutes to tell you just that much, and these days it takes us at least that long just to get to the part where we say the name of the show. So there's progress for you. A bit later, we tackled the scimitar and discussed how messed up it is in D&D, and isn't even really the thing it says it is, and maybe isn't even the thing it probably isn't, even in the fiction about that one guy who has two of them. The only reason they exist at all is so druids can have an edged weapon, and honestly, even Gary only got coincidentally lucky on that front, because really, he should have gone with Sickle, and did he even really know what he was doing most of the time or not? Which then led us to telling you about the legend of Arsalon. You can re-listen to that one fairly easily, as we'd only managed to double our running time by that point, and a nine-minute episode would cause an absolute riot these days. Then we visited the Katana, where we once again doubled our episode length to tell you about... Well, let's just say we did a bit of myth-busting and leave it at that. We had to revisit it again a bit later for the Ninjato episode, but that was mostly incidental to a discussion about Ninja Turtles. After that, it was a stop at Excalibur, and how it isn't really the sword you think it is, and then... And then nothing. Nothing until the brief mention at the start of last week's show about another sword in another stone. And here's the funny thing about this litany of past episodes about swords and what we had to say about them. In among all those facts and legends and weird ideas that get stuck in our heads even when they turn out not to be true, even after all that, We've never once sat down and talked about swords, aside from that very first episode. And even then, we didn't talk about them all that much. Which is weird when you think about it. It's definitely a topic we should have handled before now. The very lens we view all the things we talk about on this show through is very solidly based in a genre of literature and film that can most easily be classified as sword and sorcery. Sword is right there in the name. Talking about swords should be right up there with covering dungeons and dragons. But no. 
something seems to have prevented us from giving the topic a proper go. Perhaps we got so caught up in the weird back alleys of lore and fable that we never got around to it. The history and development of the sword is at least as fascinating as working out which version of which Ninja Turtle carried what weapons. So now's the time. Let's get down to it. Let's do it. The history of the sword. Can't imagine why we haven't done it before. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. In spite of every gamer's tendency, we're not going to dive into the deep and learned history of every sword ever made. No, we're a tiny, compact show, and not some overwrought weekly series on the increasingly inaccurately named History Channel out to prove why one sword was better than another beyond the shadow of a doubt until next week's episode proves an entirely different weapon was the best thing ever, and how could you ever have thought otherwise? Instead, we're going to do a sort of grand overview of the entire history of the sword as a concept and a tool. The big picture, as it were. Besides, the best sword was whatever sword you knew how to use best at the time, provided it meant the other guy got to die for his country instead of you for yours. In any case, arguing for a particular type of sword having precedence over any other in Dungeons & Dragons is a lot like arguing which calculator subtracts best. The answer is they all do, but some let you subtract a slightly bigger number than others. Conspicuously, even in its earliest, most simulationist days, the D&D game spent little to no time making a detailed study of why you might want to have a short sword or a so-called normal or long sword. The details and benefits of each were largely left up to the individual player to sort out for themselves. The biggest in-game differences between the two? About three gold pieces, 30 points of encumbrance, and rolling an eight-sided die over a six-sided one. And the big change from the basic game to fifth edition today? Things are more expensive, and encumbrance is measured in pounds instead of the inconvenient measurement of coin weights. Now, to be fair, there were and are more than just those two choices available to the discerning adventurer. The early basic game allowed the eager sword fighter to choose from the short, normal, bastard, which was used one-handed or two-handed and often called a hand-and-a-half sword and really intended for those who just could not make up their minds, and two-handed swords. The modern game has improved by leaps and bounds over the early days, and now it gives players the choice between short, long, and great swords, as well as a rapier and a scimitar. And my how the choices have grown. Some let you poke people, others slash, and the differences between the weapons are so important that the 5th edition core book doesn't even bother telling you anything beyond what's coded into the weapon table. The 5th edition difference between a short sword and a spear, for instance? You can choose to throw a spear, it costs 9 gold pieces less, and if you stab with it two-handed, you get a slightly bigger damage die. Who needs a boring old short sword? In order to tackle the history of the sword, we first have to define what a sword is so we know exactly what sort of thing we are talking about. And we're going to derive great pleasure from letting you come up with a definition of sword that covers all swords ever made in such a way that no person could be confused when looking at an object about whether it was a sword or not, and only takes, at most, two sentences. Go on, we'll wait. The problem is, of course, that there are so many things that are or might be swords that to encompass them all requires an unwieldy definition that leaves out more than it includes. 
At one point, the Merriam-Webster definition uses the phrase something that resembles a sword to define sword. Which, fair enough, but how do you know when the thing you are looking at resembles a sword if you don't know what a sword looks like in the first place? Even the source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, goofs it up when they start out with the very reasonable there is no historical dictionary for the universal names, classifications, or terminology of swords, but then follows that with a sword was simply a double-edged knife. And it's not even the knife part we have the problem with, it's the double-edged bit. We can easily think of several very definitely swords with only a single edge, scimitar, kopesh, saber, cutlass, as well as several with no edge at all, the modern foil and epee, and the rapier. At this stage, no one is going to argue that those things aren't swords, regardless of the number of edges they do or don't have. But honestly, though, that's a pretty decent place to start, the idea that a sword is just a two-edged knife. Inaccurate as it is, it's not so far from the truth that it makes things worse. That's basically what a sword is, a knife that got out of hand, so to speak. In the earliest of early days, just a bit after the monolith appeared and just before leopard skin loincloths were all the rage, there were basically two relatively easy ways to kill something yourself with a tool. You could either bash it about the head, neck, and chest until it lost interest in you and life in general, or you could cut it until all the red leaked out. True, you could poke it with a sharp stick, but that was still basically just more precise, focused bashing, and how did you get a good sharpened stick anyway before you worked out the second thing? Anyway, one thing leads you down the path of clubs and axes, and the other leads you down the path of blades and knives. We've talked before about how some rocks, particularly ones like obsidian, tend to produce very sharp edges when they fracture. These kinds of rocks would have been the first blades, and it wasn't long before we learned how to make them with a bit of directed effort, rather than just hoping to find one of a suitable shape lying on the ground. Soon after, a wide range of stone knives became available, and then everyone got very concerned with everyone else's EDC, a trend which continues to this day. Some knives scraped skins, some slashed vines and plant matter, Others sliced meat from the bone, and many could then be poked through that meat to hold it over the latest in technical gizmos, fire. And then one day, the argument about which stone blade was best for sliced mammoth and which should be reserved for mincing onions got out of hand, and Grunk stabbed Grog in the chest and all the red ran out. Which caused no small amount of concern about whether this was allowed, and whether or not a mammoth cutting blade was the proper tool to use in that situation. In either case, Grog's family thought it pretty unfair that Grunk could just go about cutting whomever he liked, so they resolved to stab him back until his red ran out because that'd show him. As things escalated, with Grog's family revenging themselves on Grunk, and then Grunk's family getting double revenge on Grog's family, and so on and so on, so too escalated the knives being used. They were less about being handy kitchen utensils, and much more about how to take whopping great slices out of, or poke dirty great holes into, your enemy. Eventually, they got big enough to be a brand new kind of tool, the dagger. And add a bit more time and a bit more animosity, and those daggers kept getting bigger and bigger as well, until suddenly dagger wasn't a good enough name for them, and we had to start calling them swords. Really, swords are just bigger daggers, and daggers are just bigger knives. So fair enough on Wikipedia calling a sword a big knife. Presumably, if you know what a knife is, you know enough about a sword to know which bit you point at the other guy. Obviously, somewhere in there we had to develop metalworking, because the one thing blades of stone are no good at is being very large. They tend to be extremely brittle once over a certain length and thinness, not to mention very heavy, 
which made them awkward to work with at larger than a knife's size. So by the very, very early Bronze Age, any blade of significant length was made from at least copper. Which, while still pretty terrible over a certain size as they tended to bend and fold when used with any amount of force, were still lighter and easier to carry than blades made of stone. And you could unbend a copper blade. Just try that with stone. At some point, probably around the 33rd to 31st centuries BCE, and somewhere around what is now Turkey, someone started mixing copper with a bit of arsenic to make arsenical bronze, a stronger, more durable metal that didn't have a tendency to flop over the first time you hit someone with it and bore no relationship to Arsenio Hall. Knives grew into daggers, and then, very gradually, daggers grew into swords. As proper bronze was developed by mixing copper with tin and other easily alloyed metals, proper swords could really take off and become a very real, serious thing all their own. Even though the earliest known swords are arguably very long daggers at about 18 inches and are incredibly few and far between, by 2300 BCE they were very definitely not daggers. They began reaching lengths around 24 inches or more and seeing widespread use. Contrary to sword making you see these days, these earliest of swords were made by pouring molten bronze into molds and then hammering them when they cooled to harden the metal. By the 13th century BCE, the techniques involved were so well understood and perfected that one particular type of sword, called the Nawi II type, started out made of bronze in Italy and saw use well into the 6th century BCE. Seven centuries that encompassed the shift from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. By the end of their run, the Nawi II were used all over Europe and into the Aegean and Syria, had gone from bronze to iron, and grown to as much as 34 inches in length. The chief advantage of the Iron Age for swords wasn't so much that they were tougher and bigger though. They still bent under heavy use, about as much as Bronze Age swords did, but where they scored over the earlier models was in terms of production. With greater access to and availability of the raw materials needed, iron, production could scale up and more swords could be turned out more easily for more people. Greek historian Polybius noted at the Battle of Telamon in 224 BCE that the Gauls had swords so badly made in iron that they bent on the first strike. The no doubt embarrassed Gauls would then have to stand on the swords to bend them back into shape. And you can only imagine the hassle that was because no one had invented timeouts yet. Finally, someone discovered that if you threw a bit of charcoal into the iron while it was being smelted, you could produce something which would eventually be called steel. If you quenched hot steel in water or oil, you got a metal that was hard and brittle, which was terrible for a sword because then it would just shatter instead of bending. But if you took that steel and tempered it by heating it back up to specific temperatures below the melting point, you got rid of the brittleness, kept the hardness, and had a metal worth making a long-lasting sword from. And so, two major swords came out of the Iron Age. The first is the Roman Gladius, pretty much the sword most folks think of when they think of Romans marching around with swords and conquering all the lands everyone else used to like so much. Probably, though, the Gladius wasn't a Roman invention. Prior to its introduction, they had used a sword very similar to the Greek Sephos, being the big fans of the Greeks that they were. A double-edged, one-handed short sword, the Sephos was the sword the Greeks used when all their spears broke, basically a backup weapon. However, the Sephos did have a significant advantage in close quarters and the press of combat. 
It was a particularly short sword already at about 18 to 24 inches long, but the Spartans were said to have them made as short as 14 inches so that in melee they could more easily thrust the sword into the enemy without getting it tangled and blocked by other men and equipment in the chaos. The Romans used a similar sword until the introduction of the Gladius Hispaniensis, the Hispanic sword, a design probably taken from the Celtiberians during the Roman conquest of Spain after they ran up against a group of these mercenaries fighting in Hannibal's army during the First Punic Wars. The Gladius was particularly adept at both slashing and stabbing, where the previous Roman sword had only been useful in stabbing opponents. At about 30 inches long and 2 inches wide, it weighed roughly 2 pounds. It could do some serious damage and gave the Roman soldier greater versatility in combat. So successful was the sword, and therefore the Romans, that it stayed in use from the 3rd century BCE until the 3rd century CE. And the second major sword to come out of the Iron Age was the Gladius's replacement. German auxiliaries to the Roman army during the 1st century CE retained their traditional heavy swords which were proving useful in various encounters throughout Europe as a heavy infantry weapon. These weapons were called Spatha and gradually began to phase out the Gladius as the standard infantry weapon among the Roman army, relegating it to light infantry duty. A typical Spatha was a straight single-handed sword anywhere between 20 and 40 inches long. Thanks to its greater length, frontline Roman troops had a better thrust reach, which is one reason it replaced the Gladius before it, but also necessitated that there be two types, one for frontline troops with a pointed end, and one for mounted troops with a rounded end so they didn't accidentally stab their horse while riding. The Spatha hung on for most of the rest of the Roman Empire up into the 6th century. One of the reasons it turned out to be such an important sword in the history of swords was, in part, because of where it saw the most use and what followed after it. The Spatha was used extensively in Northern Europe and Britain. On the one hand, many Viking Age blades evolved from the Roman Spatha with modifications over time. They came to sharper points and took on fullers or grooves that ran the length of the sword, among other things. These variations found use throughout Northern Europe and remained popular until the 10th century at least. On the other hand, in Britain, during Norman times, and possibly as an outgrowth of the Viking swords, though there seems to be some confusion on this point, a substantial guard evolved from the previously unadorned hilt to protect the hand, and blade length increased by an average of 4 inches. By the mid-10th to 13th century, the sword had changed once again from a recognizably Roman Spatha inspiration into something of its own, the knightly arming sword. It's the knightly arming sword, or just the arming sword for short, that we tend to think of in D&D when we think about what our character's sword looks like. Unless, of course, you think of the heavier two-handed long swords, but those didn't come until later, so you'll just have to wait. Weighing in at nearly two and a half pounds, the arming sword was a single-handed, straight, double-edged blade with a cross-shaped hilt and handguard arrangement and about 30 inches long. And it's that crossguard that really makes the difference between arming swords and other earlier swords. Very little was done prior to the advent of the arming sword to protect the wielder's sword hand. Most blades prior to that connected directly to the hilt of the sword with only a small interruption at the join. The other detail that suddenly becomes prominent with arming swords is the inclusion of an inscription in the design of the sword blade. As far back as the very earliest bronze swords, decoration was sometimes included in the form of silver inlay, but by and large the blade itself was left unadorned. There were some exceptions, of course, 
But it wasn't until the 12th century that inscribing the blade really became a fashionable thing to do, and many swords began to come with benedictions and blessings engraved right into the metal of the blade. Some of them even made sense, carrying the phrase, in the name of the Lord, inscribed in Latin. But later examples from the late 12th and 13th centuries were just a gibberish string of characters and symbols with no known meaning. After that, the hand-and-a-half or bastard sword is developed on the way to the true two-handed or longsword, and the one-handed sword sort of becomes a sword sidearm. Not the main weapon, but a backup like the gladius before it, as armor develops and the importance of momentum, inertia, strength, and weight become essential to getting through a good suit of armor. Longswords could be as long as 51 inches and weigh as much as 4 pounds. But crucially, the length of the blade isn't why they are called longswords when they are called longswords at all. Instead, the term refers to the length of the hilt, being long enough to accommodate two hands. And that's the problem! Now that we've come to do the episode, we see why we haven't done it before now. Because basically, we've had to hide something from you this entire time. The essential fact that means all the history of swords is a real big problem to cover properly. It's also the reason D&D never really did go into much detail about swords and try to explain what made one different from the other except in the most obvious ways. You see, the whole naming convention of sword types is pretty much a mess from start to finish. The bastard sword was only really called the bastard sword or hand and a half sword in modern times as a way of trying to separate a sort of unknown origin from the long sword which is a long sword only because of the hilt, and the short sword, which just means a sword shorter than a sword that isn't as short as it is, and used to be called, apparently, just a one-handed sword, and even then is just a term made up after the fact to make it clear it wasn't a one-and-a-half or two-handed sword. And claymores aren't claymores if they don't have a basket hilt, which just makes them a great sword, a term which includes claymores, but really just means the sword is two-handed. Unless by being two-handed, it's just a long sword because it's shorter than a great sword in length, but longer than a short sword in hilt. The whole sword thing is just a huge problem because no one really agrees on any of the various proposed classification systems for swords based on everything from time periods to pommel types to blade types to hilt types and who knows what else. Look, some swords are D6 swords, some swords are D8 swords, and one is a 2d6 sword, and that's it. That's all you need to know. Thank goodness D&D sorted it all out for us. You've been listening to GM Word of the Week, a podcast about the sorts of words one hears in role-playing games and what they mean by way of history, science, mythology, and whatever else happens to get in the way. But you knew that already, didn't you? Because here you are listening to it already. Good job, you. Well done. It's hard to know exactly what goes on in foreign lands, but J. Chris Tyler popped up on Podcast Republic back in March and gave us a very nice review. There are a couple more five stars there, but no name with them, so we're not sure who they are. But thank you very much, too. If you think we've missed seeing your review or rating somewhere, head over to the website and drop us a line. Also head over to the website at gmwordoftheweek.com if you'd like to help support the show. We run a Patreon and are happy to add new members at any support level. When combined with the pledges of others, 
you help keep the show ticking over with new episodes coming out every week. And as if that weren't enough all by itself, you can get transcripts and early episode releases, hang out for a live chat with us every month, and even get special bonus episodes each month just for supporters. It's pretty cool, and we're not the sort of people to bother you with annoying messages for no reason. No, sir. All our annoying messages have a definite point to them. But seriously, we're very easy on the email front. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, Brian Casey, noted swordologist and asker of the question, why didn't the mounted Romans have scabbards to protect their horses? Music for the episode came from Blue Dot Sessions, so good we hardly ever go looking anywhere else for music. The pen is mightier than the sword if the sword is very short and the pen is very sharp.